Okay, our topic, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4. This is number 4, I believe. And the forgiven must forgive, or a, it's a, like a handbook on reconciliation. And this is 4, 31, 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, calamity, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. And I'm just starting where I left off last week, <coughs> and we'll wrap it up today. Now, it is noteworthy, and we're talking about the need, when the Bible talks about not gossiping and confronting people face-to-face, -face, we're talking about specific sins when they occur. Not keeping a list and confronting somebody two years down the road and having 50 sins to talk about. One sin at a time, talk to them face-to-face, -face, achieve reconciliation, and put that sin away and don't bring it up to yourself to God, to your friend, don't gossip, shut your mouth. Be happy. Now, it's noteworthy that the moral law has general commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't commit adultery. They're very general. And then many very detailed prohibitions and specific examples of sin that flesh out and carefully define the general moral principles. <coughs> so the reconciliation process deals with actual identifiable sins one sin at a time. Okay, what happens when you don't deal with one sin at a time and you let things go on for years? Well, have you ever watched those shows uh, where people, what, what do they call those people where they collect junk and they fill their whole house floor to ceiling with junk? What is it called? Hoarders. Well, a lady moves into a house and it's nice and clean and bright and uh, because she doesn't clean it up, over time, it gets worse and worse and worse, and then it's not even livable. It's absolutely disgusting. But if you deal with things one thing at a time and don't let things build up, you're going to have a bright, clean, cheerful house. And I've seen, I've seen that show, Hoarders, where they'll, they'll actually clean a house up, and they'll get it all spotless. And five years later, they'll do, well, let's go visit that lady and see how it is. And the house is absolutely disgusting again. Professing Christians who refuse to identify specific sins and follow the Matthew 18, 15 and following process until a full reconciliation is achieved, but rather are happy with very general condemnations simply to put others down, are not only biblically incompetent, it's unbiblical, but it's also immoral. Our goal must be the retrieval of the person who has sinned any full reconciliation whether we like the brother or not. Now, your feelings will get in line eventually, but we're to follow Scripture, not our feelings. Love always seeks a person's sanctification, not their destruction. Gossip and slander are the devil's department. The biblical reconciliation process requires the guilty party to acknowledge and confess their guilt. You are correct, Bob. I did commit this particular sin. I sinned against God and you. I acknowledge this trespass against you, and I repent of it. Will you forgive me? God requires us to reconcile. But the statement, I'm sorry, means nothing in particular is admitted and confessed. Moreover, the one who has been sinned against is not required to forgive and reconcile. Although people are used to the apology methodology, we must admit that it is very vague and non-committal. It must never be substituted for the biblical reconciliation process. 
Once the guilty party admits their sin or confesses and then repents of it before the offended party, the offended party is required to forgive that person verbally in his presence. I forgive you, Bob. And now we are fully reconciled. Modern apologies require none of this. The statement, I forgive you, of course, must be sincere from the heart, and it is a promise that must be kept. It's not, I forgive you now, and tomorrow I don't forgive you. It's, I, I forgive you now, and from now on. The Christian statement, I forgive you, contains the biblical definition of forgiveness, which is, I will never hold the sin against you forever. I will never bring it up to you or to others or even to myself ever again. I will not speak of it, and I will try not to even think about it. Forgiveness involves a promise never to bring up or use the repentant person's sin against them, ever. This obviously means that gossip must not occur. The person must not be hated. He must not be maligned. He must not be shunned. And the one must not bring up the forgiven sin to the person again. Christian fellowship and peace are fully restored. Although intellectually in one's mind one can still remember the sin, the biblical practice of forgiveness, which is an extension of love, kindness, and mercy, will train the mind to have the proper corresponding emotions. Okay, we're fallen creatures. We have a sinful nature. We can't follow our feelings. We can't trust our feelings. We don't follow our emotions. We follow Scripture. You, you obey Scripture. You do the right thing, whether you feel like it or not, and eventually things will get on board. You know, these pagan idiots. Oh, I don't love my wife anymore, or the wife. I don't love my husband anymore. I want to get a divorce. It's a totally satanic way, a selfish way of thinking. The Bible commands you to love your wife or husband, so you do it whether you feel like it or not. And of course, if you do that over time, the emotions will get in line. Okay, why professing Christians do not forgive? The biblical teaching on forgiving a brother is so clear. We need to consider why so many professing Christians refuse to forgive brothers who sin and completely ignore the biblical reconciliation process. And there are several reasons. First, Professing Christians refuse to follow the reconciliation process and forgive because they are deficient in the Christian virtues. Love, humility, forbearance, mercy, kindness that undergird forgiveness and reconciliation. <coughs> That's why Paul starts with the Christian virtues and then he shifts to forgiveness. You need the Christian virtues as the foundation of forgiveness. If one is going to faithfully follow the reconciliation process and truly forgive one's brother, one must have mercy on that brother, for that brother, and as Paul says, regard him as more important than oneself. If you're gossiping, speaking bad about the person behind his back, and treating him like dirt, obviously you're not, you're placing, you're not placing him above yourself. The process of reaching out to retrieve a brother requires love, kindness, and concern. It requires us to reject our own egos and our own hurt feelings for the sake of our brother's repentance and sanctification. Second, many professing Christians are ignorant of Scripture. And they think that if something someone sins, that they must punish him and hurt him for sinning. 
Instead of seeking biblical reconciliation and forgiveness, they deliberately gossip and trash the person's reputation, thinking that their actions are somehow pious and helpful to the kingdom of God. I've met a lot of people who think this way. So-and-so did this, so it's my job to destroy his reputation and punish him, and they think that's pious, when it's satanic to the core. He needs to be punished, he said. God's in the punishing department. If God wants to chastise a Christian for bad behavior, like David, or Peter, or whatever, that's fine. But if they repent, we have to forgive them. Now, obviously, if they've committed a scandalous sin that's a crime, they have to endure the civil penalty, even if you forgive them. If somebody commits murder, they have to be put to death. <clears throat> Such thinking, of course, is a complete repudiation of the Christian world and life view, this idea of punishing people and not being willing to forgive them. The whole point of Matthew 18, 15 and following is to seek out and save a person who is in sin. The focus is on rescue, retrieval, sanctification, and forgiveness. The part about church discipline is only for those who refuse to acknowledge their sin and repent. The first two steps are not about punishment, but retrieval, repentance, and reconciliation. Even the third step, which does involve excommunication, it does involve public church sanctions by a church court for a refusal to repent, is designed to shock the offender so that he sees his guilt and repents. You still want them to repent. But if people don't repent, they have to be excommunicated. If church discipline leads to repentance, that person must also be forgiven. 2 Corinthians 2, 6-11. Brethren, Oh, this is, uh, this is Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Remember, you're also a sinner. You're going to sin at times. You want people to forgive you and help you, don't you? Well, you better start acting right. In the Christian church, there must always be room for confession, repentance, and a full restoration no matter how grievously a church member has sinned. <clears throat> Paul commands the Corinthian church to forgive and comfort their erring brother so he does not despair and be overcome with sorrow. However, if a professing Christian has committed a scandalous sin that is a crime, adultery, theft, assault, property damage, etc., then restitution and the civil penalty must still be inflicted. The forgiveness of a brother in the church after repentance does not erase the biblical requirement of civil justice. Now, I remember a couple years back, there was a lady from Texas, I think near Houston, and she uh, murdered two people with a pickaxe. She pickaxed two people to death. She was a drug addict. Goes to prison. <clears throat> becomes a Christian. Her death date is coming. She got the death penalty, and she rightly deserved the death penalty. Uh, 700 Club. What's that guy's name? Robinson, Robertson, Pat Robertson, Franklin Graham, a bunch of prominent evangelicals, I think Franklin Graham, uh, appealed very strongly to George Bush, who was governor at that time, to commute her sentence to life in prison. She's a Christian now! Don't put her to death! And that's unbiblical. You can forgive her, but she's got to pay the penalty. And if she really is a Christian, she'll go straight to heaven. God's justice requires a death penalty for first and second degree murder. 
Third, Christians and church officials who are corrupt will ignore the scriptures required process of reconciliation because they know that if the process is faithfully carried out, their unjust, unauthorized, and indefensible practices and or decisions will be exposed. I've seen this repeatedly when I was in the RPCNA. They don't want a trial. They don't want any public debate. They don't want any proof from Scripture. They act like Roman Catholics. I'm serious. I said repeatedly, I was in a very bad presbytery when I was in the RPCNA. The second presbytery, and the first one that I was in was, was way better. <clears throat> Many professing elders have a Romanist, prelatical concept of the elders' authority. Consequently, when their human traditions or unbiblical rulings or actions are challenged, which they know cannot be defended by Scripture, they appeal to arbitrary authority. They use their position to deny any kind of real accountable public process, and then they threaten discipline for contumacy if those defending the truth do not back off. In our day when many conservative communions are corrupt, with fault, they're corrupted with false worship, feminism, prelacy, pragmatism, and many unknowledgeable, incompetent ruling elders, an open, honest, equitable consideration of various issues at times, or at times simply cut off without any fair hearing at all. I know many, many examples. There was a guy at Geneva College who published an article in the, the college newspaper. This is the RPCNA College condemning Roman Catholicism, and they had a lot of Roman Catholic students at that college that complained that they fired him. He got fired. <laughs> he got fired for teaching what the scripture teaches. Here's some actual cases in conservative Presbyterian communions in the last three decades. Number one, when families complained about real public violations of the regular principle of worship, there was a Presbyterian commission which met with the offender, the pastor, and they came, tried to come up with a plan to circumvent the charges. In other words, let's not have a real fair trial. Let's just meet with the people that we already agree with <laughs> to try to keep, get these people to shut up. The complainants were not met with, uh, were not happy, and the, and the bias corrupt commission were and with that commission, and were told to come to the next presbytery meeting. The presbytery, upon their arrival, voted not to allow the complainants to speak at all, and they refused to consider their case. And they were threatened with discipline uh, behind the scenes, and they were basically told, "Go find another church." And this was stuff. This was against Christmas and and children's program, you know, like children's church where the kids would come up to the front of the church and get a little mini sermon and all this Christmas stuff. There's all this violations of the regular principle. Number two, a Christian father who, uh, <clears throat> who was a Presbyterian elder was taking his granddaughter to participate in a very scantily clad cheerleading squad even after he was told by his Christian son that he did not approve of this practice because the apparel was clearly not modest or decent. And you've all seen what modern they look like. Because of the father's refusal to respect his son's authority in this matter, the granddaughter was not permitted to visit her grandparent parents unless the grandfather repented and promised not to do that anymore. Because he'd already been warned and he was doing it behind his back is what was going on. The Presbyterian elder took his son to civil court and sued him to force him to allow the visits, even though the action is explicitly forbidden by Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8, you're not allowed to sue a Christian in court. It has to go be decided by the elders in the church. 
The Sun, the biblical one, presented 65 pages listing Christian commentaries, theologians, and detailed exegesis to support his position. Well, what did the presbytery do? Did they bow the knee to scripture and say, yeah, you really shouldn't be doing that. Why don't you just repent and you and your son can reconcile? Well, the presbytery ruled that the evidence was inadmissible and they ruled in favor of the father without even looking at the evidence because they'd made their decision apart from the scriptures like a Roman Catholic bishop. Number three, a group of women brought a complaint directly to the session regarding the pastor's wife wearing a head covering in public worship. Even though Paul requires cloth head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11, and head coverings, a real cloth head covering, was practiced by every branch of the Christian church throughout the whole world until the late 1960s. And uh, if you want to read a good article on that, go on reformedonline.com and read my article on head coverings in public worship. It's required by God. It's, it's not hair. That's the most stupid argument in the world. It's not hair. And it's not some cultural... Paul was not imposing a cultural practice. Imagine Paul, oh, well, this is a cultural thing. You've got to do it for culture, for pagan culture. Paul was not imposing a cultural practice. Well, what happened? The pastor was fired to please the unloving, judgmental, legalistic feminist in the church. Number four, here's another one. A pastor's wife made an accusation of abuse against her husband to the presbytery. The pastor vigorously denied the charges, and there was no evidence or other witnesses to support her accusations. None. It was one person. Even though it was publicly known that this woman had serious mental problems, it was well known she had serious mental problems, the presbytery, based on one witness with clear mental issues, which is a violation of Deuteronomy 19.15 and Matthew 18.16, defrocked the pastor and completely destroyed his ministry. The same presbytery threatened another minister with discipline for saying it was wrong to use grape juice in communion. Even though Jesus and the apostles used real wine, we are told to use wine, we're not told to use grape juice. And they go, the, the dumb argument, oh, they say the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine was a Jewish liturgical uh, phrase for wine. And they didn't have grape juice until the 1850s when they discovered how to sterilize. Uh, after they crushed the grapes, they would sterilize it, and, and then they would try to keep it on ice and try to keep it fresh. They, grape juice didn't exist then. Grape juice would last for one day and it would start to rot and it would turn into wine within, you know, it would become sour very rapidly. Such examples could be multiplied. The point that needs to be taken to heart is that churches often do not obey biblical principles and procedures of reconciliation. They act as if they have intrinsic autonomous authority like a Roman Catholic. The result is pragmatism, favoritism, and blatant injustice. Things have gotten so bad in many churches when it comes to the administration of justice that often, my opinion of the Presbytery I was in when I was in the RBC, I would trust a pagan court more than I would trust that court. That's how bad that court was. They did whatever they wanted. They, they ignored the blue book. They, they followed the blue book if it served them. If it didn't, that's their book of church order. They would disobey the book of church order when it suited them. Uh, 
but if it supported them, they would appeal to it. And then, of course, the, one of the problems is the biblical qualification for elders among Presbyterians uh, is very lax. Ruling elders have to be able to teach. Ruling elders have to know the scriptures. Ruling elders have to know, know the Bible and theology. And they should know, like Jay Adams and Christian counseling and so forth. Nowadays, if you come to church and you're faithful and you tithe and you're a good businessman and you're not committing any scandalous sin, hey, Bob, you want to be an elder? So you've got all these elders who don't know what they're doing, who just simply, whatever the pastor wants, they just go along with it. And that's not what the point of the ruling elder is. Most heresies in history come from pastors. Most heresies in history come from theology professors. You want a good, solid ruling elders there to keep things conservative. If a biblical elder does not understand the biblical definition of love, justice, evidence, then he is susceptible to notions from pagan psychology, pragmatism, subjectivism. Church officers are not supposed to follow their feelings or their own personal opinions, but the teaching of God's word alone. When the Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthian believers for taking their conflicts before a pagan civil court, he assumed that the Christian judgment rendered would be far superior to the pagan's ability to judge. Here's 1 Corinthians 6, 1-5. Dare any of you, having a matter before another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will, that the world will be judged by you? Are you not unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do not appoint those uh, who are least esteemed. Uh, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there, that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who is able to judge between his brethren. Well, what do you do if you're in a situation where the elders are corrupt? They're acting corruptly, arbitrarily, pragmatically, like Roman Catholic bishops then one must calmly and gently point out biblical inconsistencies while showing respect to the office. If one is not satisfied, one must appeal to a higher court. I know a guy who was in the OPC got brought up on charges for refusing to sing the uninspired hymns, which are not commanded by Scripture. It went all the way to the General Assembly of the OPC, and he won. The problem is most people don't fight it. Most people just leave the church. I think you're obligated to fight it. God requires us to love our brothers and follow biblical procedures, but we must not submit to or accept ecclesiastical tyranny, corruption, and injustice. God does not honor, accept, or back up decisions of an ecclesiastical court that are unbiblical, unjust, untruthful, and therefore sinful. So we have a moral obligation to come. They have a moral obligation to come and admonish us. The answer to this question um, Are we allowed to overlook such situations because Jesus plainly teaches that the offended party has a moral obligation to come and admonish us? Matthew 18, 15, and, Luke, uh, and following, and Luke 17, 3 to 4. And the answer to this question is no, absolutely not. Christ teaches that if you perceive that someone who is a believer has something against you, you are obligated to seek him out to receive to achieve reconciliation. Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Our Lord describes the man who comes to the temple to bring a gift, offering to the Lord, that is to worship in communion with God, and he realizes that he has done, done something to offend his brother, or that his brother is offended about something. And he, maybe he's not sure why. 
Jesus says that under such circumstances, this man must not make the offering until he first goes to his brother and he achieves, or at least makes a serious attempt to achieve reconciliation. The guilty party is required to come to terms quickly. In the case described where a debt or restitution must be paid, the guilty party must seek reconciliation as soon as possible. There must be no pro procrastination, but rather an urgency. For if it's not handled right away, matters will become worse. There are negative consequences for leaving issues unresolved between brothers. Now, if we apply this teaching to our modern situation, we could paraphrase it as follows. Now, if you're public worship and you realize that your brother has a legitimate grievance against you, do not partake of the Holy Supper until you first seek reconciliation and make amends with your brother. I think that's the best way to translate the Old Testament situation to a New Covenant situation. We're not going to be making offerings at the temple. God does not want us to approach him and worship until conflicts of which we may be a part or responsible for are resolved to the best of our ability. Christ explicitly teaches that the time for reconciliation is always right now. The responsibility is always your responsibility, whether you are the offender or the one offended. In a church of knowledgeable, mature, godly Christians, ideally the two parties should meet each other on the other way to each other's house. Our Lord clearly emphasizes the obligation and necessity of seeking reconciliation and forgiveness from both sides of a sinful word or act. This practice, of course, requires humility, courage, love, compassion, forbearance, and mercy, and Jesus expects the church to be a living example of the gospel and its effects. It goes against our sinful nature to want to do this, but we have to do it. A church of hatred, gossip, conflict, factions, and resentments, which leads to acts of revenge, dishonors, denigrates, and implicitly denies the message and truthfulness of the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of reconciliation. It's not designed to bring disharmony and people hating each other's guts and gossiping about each other behind their backs. The Savior's teaching is serious yet thoroughly logical. The point essentially is if I treat my brother like dirt and I refuse to do everything I biblically can to make the situation right and reconcile, then why should God hear me? How can I worship God and Jesus for reaching out to me, having mercy on me, forgiving me all my sins, and bringing me into his own family when I am bitter, unmerciful, unforgiving, and mistreat other members of his household? If a professing Christian is full of hate and is vengeful, refuses to speak to a brother and makes matters worse by gossiping, then the Son of the living God assures him that his attempted act of worship is vain or useless. Consider the great importance that Christ places on love, mercy, putting others first, reconciliation, forgiveness, and peace in the body of Christ. No wonder the Apostle John wrote this, 1 John 3, 14-19. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brethren abides in death. Moreover, who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we love, we know. Um, by this we know love because we he laid... He laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whatever has the world's, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before men. This, this teaching applies to every one of us. So let us examine our hearts 
so that we obey the scriptures in appropriate circumstances. Jesus spoke about this topic with an exceptionally sober warning about our own status before God precisely so that we would not neglect it. The stuff's emphasized in scripture, yet it's not taught. And it's not practiced a lot of the time. It's sad. Now, if we go to our brother, seek reconciliation, confess our sin, ask for forgiveness, yet our brother, confessing brother, tells us essentially to get lost, and this scenario actually occurs. It's happened to me before. What should we do? Well, here we have a situation where Matthew 18, 15 and following applies, but now toward the sin of refusing to forgive a brother. Now, if they're in a church, if they're in your church, you can bring them up. You can follow Matthew 18. One must find a knowledgeable, mature Christian brother, or two, and go to that brother and attempt to secure forgiveness. Professing Christians are sinners and are experts at finding excuses not to forgive. Having solid, knowledgeable Christians as witnesses will help to identify unbiblical excuses. Like, I've, I've tried to reconcile with certain people, and they, they keep, well, you need to do this, you need to do this. They keep moving the line. <laughs> it's like a slippery, you know, they just don't want to forgive, so they keep making new conditions. And a lot of conditions are not even biblical. Some have been offended think that they have a biblical right to identify unbiblical excuses. Some who have been offended think that they have a biblical right to punish and discipline a fellow Christian themselves, apart from the session. But as we have seen, only sins that get to the third stage, where the church court gets involved, can have ecclesiastical sanctions. The only exception, as we have noted, involves scandalous sins that are crimes, which are public by nature, adultery, fraud, teaching heresy, theft, assault, marching in a sodomite parade. When someone sins in a manner that, is, that greatly angers another professing Christian, it is not uncommon for the offended party to excommunicate and completely shun or reject the other believer on a, on a personal level. I've been, to, I've been members of churches where these people didn't talk to these people and these people didn't talk to these people. That's totally unbiblical. We must not allow feelings or emotions or personal grudges to circumvent the clear teachings of Jesus, Paul, John, and Moses. When repentance occurs, forgiveness is not optional. And God does not give individual Christians the right to make up their own ecclesiastical sanctions. In addition, we must remember that our Lord requires us to forgive every sin, even multiple times if necessary. There's not a special category of sins that we don't have, don't have to forgive. Our Savior forgave Paul, a persecutor and a murderer of Christians. He forgave Peter, who denied him three times with cursings. Christ also forgave the malefactor on the cross, who was a brigand, a professional criminal, and very likely a murderer. God forgave David, an adulterer and a murderer. That forgiven murderer and adulterer wrote most of the church's inspired hymn book, the Psalter. Paul was the greatest apostle, and he wrote much of the New Testament, more than anyone else. God's forgiveness is comprehensive and covers every sin, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which I'm not going to get into now. When a brother acknowledges a sin, confesses and repents, there is no acceptable reasons not to forgive.
None. If a Christian church claims to have repented, and then after the reconciliation process is over, it is revealed, and it is revealed that there is no repentance, real repentance, and the sin continues, then the matter goes directly to the second stage of Matthew 18 process. Okay, somebody's a drunk or somebody's taking drugs or something, and, oh, I repent, I don't do that anymore at all. And then uh, you, go, you go to the bar to get some matches or something or to buy one beer, and there he is, drunk, hammered at the bar, and he's snorting coke on the counter or something. Well, obviously he didn't repent, and then you just got to go to the next process. We must be very careful to follow the reconciliation process set forth by Christ and not improvise, act pragmatically or autonomously like a Roman Catholic or a pagan. Jesus knows what is best for us, our brothers, and the corporate body. In those rare instances where people move or you can't get in contact with a Christian who we think may have something against us, there's really nothing one can do other than pray and turn the matter over to the Lord. And I've had that where I know somebody has something against me, they don't want to reconcile with me, and uh, they deliberately put themselves in a situation where I have no way of contacting that, contacting them because they're just unwilling to forgive. There's nothing you can do. Well, forgiveness is a state of mind. And then we'll wrap this up. I only have a couple pages. Having noted the meaning, requirement, conditions of reconciliation and forgiveness, we need to think about forgiveness as a mindset or an inner commitment. God does not want us to go through the reconciliation process to forgive our brother outwardly, yet remain full of bitterness and resentment on the inside. And our Lord addresses this issue in Mark 11, 25 to 26. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. This passage has some of the same teaching found in the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts, or our trespasses, as we forgive our debtors. Matthew 6, 12. And also notice Jesus' comments after this model prayer. He repeats himself. This is six, Matthew 6, 14 to 15. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. That's pretty radical. Now, of course, when Jesus says that if we forgive, God will forgive us, he's not contradicting the gospel of pure grace and saying that if we forgive, we are meriting salvation in some sense. That is, as a good deed, as a meritorious ground or procuring cause of justification and eternal life. That's not what it's saying. But rather that we are not exhibiting the fruit of saving faith. In other words, it is evidence that a person does not really believe in Christ or the Bible and is living in self-deception. It is no different than a Redeemer's statement in Matthew 7 that those who practice lawlessness, verse 23, and do not produce good fruit, verses 16 to 20, are excluded from the kingdom of God, verses 19, 21, and 23. Similarly, Paul says that fornicators, those who practice sexual immorality, very broad term, idolaters, uh, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, revilers, and extortioners, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. Jesus and the apostles preached repentance, a change of mind concerning God, Christ, sin, ourselves, the Bible, and the forgiveness of sins. Luke 24, 47, Acts 17, 30. Faith is the sole instrument that lays hold of Christ. See Acts 13.39, Romans 3.20-24 and 28, 4.3-8, Galatians 2.16, Philippians 3.8-9, Ephesians 2.8-9. But faith always produces Christian works or good fruit. Okay, we can't see the heart. All we can do is see the outward evidence. 
Union with Christ and his death and resurrection results in regeneration and sanctification, not simply justification. Faith without works, James says, is dead, 2.17. That is lifeless, non-existent, worthless. <clears throat> now, why do we find this insistence on forgiving repeatedly? And the answer is found that due to our sinful natures, we are disinclined to forgive. Sinful egos want payback and thus harbor resentment, bitterness, and anger. Such things stimulate hatred and sinful speech, gossip, slander, tailbearing, insults, and of course actions. Given the analogy of scripture and what we have seen about the reconciliation process and the necessity of repentance, this passage teaches us two important things about forgiveness. The first is that if we come to God in prayer and realize that we have a problem with another brother, we must commit ourselves to achieving a full, biblical, sincere forgiveness of that person before we continue in prayer. You commit yourself to it. There must be an inward, heartfelt promise to God to seek him out, admonish him, reprove or rebuke, which means to verbally admonish so as to bring conviction, and forgive him the moment he acknowledges his sin and repents. Then one must never bring up that sin to self, to him, or to others. And one must not dwell on that sin and harbor resentment towards him. In other words, he must be treated as if he never committed the sin. So we must be like the Lord who, and this is Psalm 86.5, the Lord is good and ready to forgive abundant mercy. And that is what the passage refers to in the light of Luke 17.3-4, Matthew 5.23-24, and of course 18.15 and following. This passage also teaches us that if we have successfully gone through the reconciliation process and extended forgiveness to our brother, we must not come to God in prayer having bitterness, anger, malice, or resentment in our hearts against that brother. You've got to let it go. After teaching the necessity of faith and the efficacy of believing prayer, our Lord tells us that angry, hateful, vindictive feelings or thoughts toward our brother will hinder our prayers. We are Christ's disciples, and we must pray and forgive like our Savior would for his people. Refusing to heal broken relationships and refusing to really forgive when we have given our word as a Christian that we have extended forgiveness are serious sins that will destroy the effectiveness of our prayers. So our prayers must not only be earnest, fervent, sincere in the name of Christ, they must come from a forgiving heart. And we have no right to look for mercy if we are not ready to extend mercy to our brothers and sisters. When God has forgiven us a whole life of sin and rebellion against him, it is totally inconsistent with our profession and position in Christ to refuse to forgive others. Here's what Calvin says. The compassion, therefore, to which our Lord exhorts us is, is not a rocking of ourselves asleep in our infirmities through flattery, but a holding of ourselves in check and a tempering of our rigor in such a way that may always be mingled with our vinegar, as they say. That is, in effect, the place to which Paul uh, meant to us, to bring us, for although every man does his best to be pitiful, so that he may not display too great severity towards his neighbors, yet it is contrary to our nature as anything can be. For as I have said already, the self-love of ours so blinds us that we make the smallest faults in the world to be akin to heinous and unpardonable sins. By which means, if any man angers us, it seems to us that his fault ought not to be forgiven at all. So then, mercifulness will meet with opposition from men unless they battle on to the end. As for the simple teaching, it will not profit, us, profit in the respect 
uh, in that respect. We have this evil so deeply rooted in our hearts that if we are told of our duty, it only moves, half moves us. For this reason, Paul sets the example of God before us here. He has forgiven us in his only son, and without delay, he adds our Lord Jesus Christ, who spared not himself when it was a question of our redemption and salvation. What then can break down all hardness in us? What can mortify all our excessive passions? What can correct all our cruelty? Bring low all our pride and loftiness and sweeten all of our bitterness is to contemplate what God has done toward us. He has so loved the world that he has given us his only son to death to us, John 3.16. If we compare ourselves with God, what a distance there is between us. So then the greatest wrongs that we can possibly imagine are nothing in comparison with the least fault that is committed against God. For a man cannot engage in breaking God's will, even in the slightest, without the same being a transgression against his sovereign dominion, a violation of his majesty, and an overthrowing of his righteousness, which things are preciousness itself. End of quote. Calvin's just amazing. That's from his sermons on Ephesians. And then we'll wrap it up here. To reject reconciliation and forgiveness of our brothers is to reject biblical Christianity. As Christians, we must take Jesus' words seriously and continually meditate on what these words clearly mean. If we are unloving, hateful, unmerciful, and unwilling to forgive a brother, God will not forgive us our trespasses. Conservative professing Christians emphatically reject sexual immorality, theft, murder, homosexuality, and fraud. Yet gossip and refusing to forgive are somehow common and acceptable today in, in Christian circles. They are. They're common. Where is the biblical experiential practice of true Christian discipleship, true biblical piety? The most important thing we have received from God through Christ is the forgiveness of our sins, which achieves our reconciliation with the only true and living God. If we refuse to imitate Christ, then we are not his true followers. We must be kind to one another, full of courtesy, friendliness, quick to help, and communicate with an earnest desire for mutual edification. Being rude, avoiding contact, having a legalistic judgmental spirit, refusing to communicate problems face-to-face, -face, and gossiping are obviously contrary to this explicit requirement. We must be tender-hearted, compassionate, merciful, patient, forbearing. For believers are not only sinners, but also are slow to understand and stubborn at times. A loving mindset and genial sympathy that regards the other Christian is more important than ourselves must characterize all of our discourse. I tell you, if you find somebody gossiping about another behind his back, he's not caring for that other person more than himself because he's ripping his reputation. That's the whole point of gossip, is to tear down. All thoughts of hate, wrath, and revenge must be cast behind our back in imitation of Christ for the sake of our brother. Our rebuke must not be hot or hasty or self-serving, and intended to hurt or destroy, but rather must be carefully thought out and crafted with biblical arguments so that her brother is convicted of sin and repents. The goal is never simply to win an argument, but rather to retrieve a brother and achieve forgiveness, a real reconciliation. We must forgive sincerely, heartily, and permanently, even as God has forgiven us. God's forgiveness toward us is undeserved. It's not deserved. It's not earned. It's not merited. It is free, flowing solely from his love, grace, and mercy. The basis of it is Jesus' perfect redemptive work, and thus it is not limited or partial but comprehensive. He forgives us everything. 
No matter the number, the seriousness and long period of sin, God in Christ forgives us totally or fully. He casts all of our sins into the bottom of the ocean, and he never brings them up again. He never holds them against us, but treats us as his own dear children in Christ. We must love one another because our Lord loved us and gave himself for us. Jesus tells us, Luke 6, 36-37, Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Let us understand that real, genuine, self-denying love will never grow from any roots but faith in Christ's atoning death and a heart renewed by the Holy Spirit. We shall never make men love one another unless we teach, as Paul taught, walk in love as Christ has forgiven us, has loved us. So it's all imitation of Christ. So I hope that's been helpful. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your, your teaching on this. It's profound where you fall short so much. Bend our hearts, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Cause us to love your word. Cause us to obey your word. To cherish your word. Put it in our hearts. And let us not let things go unresolved. Let us not have bitterness in our hearts. Let us not not forgive. Let us seek reconciliation. For, Lord, you have forgiven us way more sin. A mountain. A giant mountain of guilt. So have us to be, help us to be forgiving and loving and compassionate toward our brethren. In Jesus' name, amen.